Hello out there in the wide world of uh, Seek Outside podcast enthusiasts. Hope y'all are doing great today. Um, Just wanted to let you know and bring your attention to the Seek Outside YouTube page. We have, uh, we got a new video that's coming up uh, on Thursday, tomorrow, Thursday, August 11th. That video is pretty sweet. It's a video of us going up and catching some beautiful cutthroat trout in the in the high alpine of Colorado. So make sure you all check that out. Um, we're doing a little catch and cook. Um, we kind of had a battle between the spinning rod and the fly rod. So watch the video to see who did better. Um, so yeah, hope you guys enjoy that. Just a little seek outside related news. If you are uh, planning on getting a tent uh, or a backpack for hunting season, uh, do it now. Our lead times have extended just a little bit um, due to, I mean, we've <laughs> we've been getting a lot of orders, um, so we've been working hard over here. Um, but if you are looking to get something before hunting season, place that order now. Um, otherwise, we can't really guarantee it. So um, just make sure that you're on top of that. Feel free to call us if you have any other questions. Uh, if you do have an order in and you got a trip coming in that's making you a little bit nervous, feel free to give us a call. In most cases, we can, we can do something for you to have, make sure you have your, your shelter or your backpack by the time of your trip. So, all right, guys, enjoy this podcast with Ed Arnett. Um, he is a member of the wildlife society, which was started by Aldo Leopold. Um, it's a really cool society. sounds like the Illuminati for, uh, honestly, for, for wildlife biologists, you know, they probably, probably do some shady shit out there, but, uh, no, I'm just kidding. They do, they do awesome stuff. So hope you guys enjoy the podcast and chat at you later. Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. And then you should, you think that's bad. You see your Ryan on the phone in the office. <laughs> Ed Arnett, uh, we got Ed Arnett on the podcast today. Um, you are the uh, head science guy over at the Wildlife Society, is that correct? I'm the chief executive officer, and last oh. time we spoke, oh. I was chief scientist at the TRCP. Oh. That's the last time I spoke with Kevin and, and company over at Seek Outside, so, but... Um, okay. Yeah, I, I still claim to be a scientist, though uh, some of my members would probably say, "Yeah, you're not practicing anymore." So, <laughs> yeah. So, so CEO, CEO at the Wildlife Society. Um, you want to kind of go in a little bit more in depth on uh, what you do over there? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, the Wildlife Society we're a nonprofit, but it's the professional society of wildlife biologists. Um, We've been uh, around a long time. Aldo Leopold was involved with the formation of the Wildlife Society back in 1937. Um, there's a conference that uh, was held. The first one was held in St. Louis. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think. That was 1936, I believe. But uh, that's when they formulated the idea of a professional society for wildlife professionals and uh, the Wildlife Federation was actually formed about the same time with the idea that 
the Wildlife Society would be more on the science and management end of things, and the Wildlife Federation would be maybe more on the policy and education side. So we were formed at the same time, uh, at the same meeting, really, and, and uh, started in 1937. You'd actually think Aldo Leopold would have been the first president of the Wildlife Society, but he wasn't. He was our third. <laughs> okay. Huh. But he was deeply involved um, with the Wildlife Society, and in fact, uh, one of the honor one of the things we do is honor wildlife professionals for their service and their work. And our Lifetime Achievement Award, essentially the the the, the biggest award that we give and uh, that bestow upon a a member, is the Aldo Leopold Memorial uh, Award. So, again, we're the professional society of biologists. We do trainings, workshops, uh, all kinds of different member services. The idea is to, uh, and our mission is to inspire, empower, and enable wildlife professionals to do their jobs, which is to sustain wildlife populations and their habitats. I've been a member forever. I've been a member for since 1984, um, right right when I went to started going to, to school uh, and remain a member to this day, obviously. And um, And what I do is I oversee a staff of uh, I better get my numbers right or my staff will kill me. Uh, we added two people here recently, so uh, 14 full-time staff, uh, and then we have uh, any, a couple of interns uh, throughout the year. Um, but the, those staff members provide the member services, so we, we work on professional development. We have a certification program. So if you've taken the educational requirements in college and worked in the wildlife profession, you can apply to be kind and judged by your peers. We have a whole committee that looks at these applications to be a certified wildlife biologist uh, through the Wildlife Society. So I oversee everything. I, I, I run the operation. I run the uh, oversee the show, but the staff really do all the hard work. So, <laughs> yeah. So essentially, if a, if there's a wildlife biologist that has graduated from you know Montana State University. And I say that because that's my brother's situation. First well, one that popped to the head. I graduated from too. That's oh, one nice. Of my, one of my nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, so say my brother, he, he get, got his wildlife biology degree. He would come to the Wildlife Society to essentially get, uh, get training for in-field in operations. What, what kind of training do you do? I mean, like, like maybe uh, break down kind of what a, uh, what a training session would be like in sure. the wildlife society. And and before I jump into that, let me just explain our structure just a little bit too. So we work at what we call headquarters, which is the wildlife society, which is an international, uh, has an international framework, but we're very heavy to the U S and Canada. Uh, we're starting a chapter in Mexico pretty soon here, but, um, we uh, we have uh, state chapters in all states and sometimes multiple chapters in a state that's as large as California. And then there are sections that represent uh, certain regions of the country. There's, there are uh, seven of them in North America, in the, the U.S., and one of them in Canada. So we have eight vote uh, sections, and there's a representative of each of those sections, which, again, reflect a, a bunch of different states. Uh, Central Mountains, Southwest, Northeast, those kinds of geologic or uh, geographic breakdowns. Uh, those representatives, those eight representatives, serve on our council. And then we have a four-year term for the presidency. So if you're voted in as the president 
of the Wildlife Society. You start as vice president, then you're president-elect, then you're president, then past president. So it's a four-year term, and that's our executive committee. Those four folks are my main bosses, but all of all of council, there's 12 people on the council that serve as our, basically my board of directors. Um, the reason I brought that up is we do a lot of localized workshops at the state and section level. These are independent entities, but we're all kind of under one big umbrella. You, you kind of understand the structure of backcountry hunters and anglers, uh, you know, and other entities like that. It's very similar. You have kind of a bigger national or broader international type organization than you have local chapters uh, and maybe sections in our and sections in our case. We all do workshops, so it, it can vary from um, at the state and section level to how to run a chainsaw and uh, manage habitat to um, population modeling, statistics, uh, field capture of, of large animals like mule deer, moose, elk. Uh, it, it varies quite a bit. It's kind of a wildlife management techniques uh a series in some cases where workshops are just how to how to if you will um, other workshops might be on um, uh, budget management and nonprofit management. we don't we do we just do a lot of different things uh, business management and and for the for the national level um, and we do diversity training and those kinds of, of uh, uh, diversity workshops as well uh, like at our annual conference, which is where we typically hold our workshops, um, we'll have a whole series of workshops that come in from our working groups. So we have a, a whole series of working groups that on, on very specific topics like renewable energy or renewable energy working group, a biometrics working group. They'll make a proposal and do a workshop and training and then people come they can some of them are paid uh workshops some of them uh, uh can be free and and our members sign up for them and they they go get trained by professionals to do it so that's kind of how it works we also have a webinar series uh where we do uh cer certain kinds of webinar trainings as well okay um so are you guys kind of linked up with uh the fish and wildlife departments of across the america uh, across the u.s to you know like is, is there any other place where a wildlife biologist could get training or are you guys kind of the, the main oh, no, there's lots of that? places. There's lots of places. I mean, you know, and, and we do policy uh, trainings as well. Okay. Um, you know, but you could also get trained in the policy space from uh, those that out, uh, act in, in policy like uh, BHA, they do some, some training workshops. Um, uh, the key thing there is, uh, I'm, I'm thinking very specifically on policy, some of their workshops that they have, uh, uh, TRCP could do that. There's any number of entities that might do that. The key is whether it counts toward credit, toward your certification and, and mm -hmm. continuing education. And that's where TWS may or may not link up with outside entities and what you know they may provide as a training. We do that with universities. Uh, certainly, but, um, you know, our specific workshops that we give are also uh, count for credit. Uh, the certification program used to be a one-and-done thing, uh, and, and I can't remember the year it changed, but, uh, and I was grandfathered in, I became a certified wildlife biologist back in 1996, uh, so I, I don't have to continually um, recertify, but now uh, it's every five years, 
the idea there is that you're continually going to either our annual conference or the Ecological Society of America or some are taking uh, academic credits. The idea is you're kind of in a continual learning uh, space and, and um, you know, just bettering yourself as a professional and recertifying uh, to show that um, that uh, you're... you're you're, you're, you're up the standards. You're, yeah, you're 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 up to speed on the standards, and uh, and it, 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 the interesting thing there is it gets real dicey when you start arguing or, or having a conversation with some that say I don't need you know the Wildlife Society or the Ecological Society or anybody else tell me I'm a good biologist, uh, you know. So some don't um, subscribe to the program, um, but we like to present a platform where people can just continually learn constantly networking and and that's that's what the wildlife society really is it's a place where people can network they can um, build relationships connections get these trainings continue it's kind of a path of continuous education to just be a better professional not that so you don't do it aren't good professionals but yeah yeah no you guys are essentially the illuminati of the wildlife biologist world correct <laughs> uh yeah so so what does um so say you get certified as a wildlife biologist with the wildlife society what would that biologist be doing differently than what they had been doing before they got certified well nothing norm nothing different necessarily what it's saying is that uh, a, a a committee of your peers have looked over your resume and you can apply as an associate biologist just based on education um, and get certified as an associate biologist and then you have a time period where you work in the field. What I did was I, I already had my education. I had my bachelor's and master's all ready to go uh, for the education piece and then I worked for oh, probably I think uh, six, six or seven years. I think for five, you need five years of professional uh, work in the in the profession as a biologist or an ecologist, academician, uh, whatever it is, and then you can apply, and then you get the your application will should, you know theoretically should be accepted. Uh, yeah, and now again you have to continue you have to kind of show that you're continuing your education. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing anything different. It just shows support for the for the wildlife profession. The profession is showing that you're taking the steps to educate yourself and demonstrate that um, that um, your professional society is recognizing you uh, as, as a biologist, but the work doesn't necessarily change. Uh, the interesting thing there, and this could go on for a long while talking about the ins and outs of this, but it's not like uh, very many employers require that, that CWB, uh, we have a trademark, so if you look at my my um, uh, in my email signature, you'll see I spell it out as a certified wildlife biologist. There's a little trademark R there, um, but some people just put CWB. But you don't necessarily that doesn't necessarily guarantee you a job or get you more pay or yeah. it's just not required. It's a really nice thing to have though. I did it for two reasons. One, at the time, uh, well, first of all, just to support my professional society. It's just something offered by the wildlife society and uh, this is the right thing to do bucks, yeah. and you know it, it's um it, it's kind of nice to be recognized by your peers but also i was working in the timber industry at the time and any little 
uh, thing that you can do to demonstrate that uh, you're you're a credible wildlife person, even uh, working in industry. There's perception factors there when you work mm -hmm. in industry, and cause I've had consultants tell me it really helps them sometimes to have that certification behind their name, um, uh, and it certainly helps in uh, profession, you know, testimony, those kinds of things. Uh, people just may view you a little bit differently if it's promoted, but the work's the same. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I could imagine just being um, recognized as a wildlife biology in a society that was, you know, that although Leopold had a big part in is, I mean, it's just kind of a cool thing for a wildlife biologist, you know, knowing that, that, uh, that world a little bit, I feel like you guys don't get nearly enough credit for, you know, for, I think hunters and outdoorsmen, hunters and fishermen, we, we know. But right. But because you guys directly impact what uh, what we do and, you know, sometimes people get pissed with you guys. But uh, but it's always, you know, uh, I, f I feel like personally, it's always for the best. Um, but I feel like, you know, uh, some of the other recreational uh, sports that are enjoying the outdoors don't necessarily recognize what wildlife biologists are doing and especially you know there's some recreational uh activities out there i don't want to name names biking um but <laughs> they tend to really really not like what the wildlife biologists say so um well, impeding their ability to do some things they want to do and that's the conflicts yeah. of public land right it's multiple use and uh, people want to uh, want to do various things, off-road vehicles or another, and um, there's space for everybody, but there's a time and a place for everything. And and uh, putting a mountain biking trail or an off-road vehicle trail through critical winter range or calving areas for elk and that kind of thing may not be a good idea. And if the science says there's an impact, then we have to have a conversation. Yeah. All right. So I kind of want to switch gears a little bit to more of like the conservation yeah. you know, the, the, the real grit of the conversation. So, um, are you guys involved in like funding any projects, uh, that are conservation related or are you guys kind of out of that, uh, that realm and more in the training? Yeah, we don't fund, uh, at certainly at headquarters, we don't fund, um, on the ground conservation projects directly like the Mule Deer Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, you know, the traditional <clears throat> uh, species and conservation type related, or land trusts like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, easements and stuff like TNC handles. Um, that's not what we do. What, what we would do is provide the trainings, uh, the how-tos, the ins and outs of an easement, for example, uh, we might, um, and, and we certainly work in the policy space to ensure the funding's there for things like uh, habitat conservation um, and um, defending PR, and as we have to head to recently with, there's a crazy bill out there. Uh, that's still developing, but there's a bill out there to, to uh, dismantle PR funding, and so uh, that's a bad idea, uh, you know, yeah. but we support we supported Rawa. I know you've uh, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. I know you've covered that quite a bit. We've been playing very heavy in that. That's one of our policy. Uh, that's one of our big policy priorities. But the other thing we do on the policy front is we do uh, scientific uh, and uh, reviews of the literature, create technical reviews, uh, and and those almost always lead to a position statement 
uh, but we can also do position statements without necessarily having the big science review. And um, the, the key thing there is I, I feel like having a position statement from the Professional Society of Biologists always helps in an argument or a, a debate or a policy uh, discussion. Uh, I used them when I was at the TRCP. I used the Wildlife Society position statements all the time. Okay. So, so we will um, funding and let others do the distribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I do want to kind of jump back on the um, bill that was introduced, I believe, out of, it was a Georgia House of Representatives guy or a senator um, that uh, essentially House. would cut all of the Pittman Robertson's dollars from just guns and ammunition or I, I, I saw a couple different things because I saw one that was just guns and ammunition, but then I saw one that was it could be like bows and arrows and stuff like that. Um, could you just break that bill down and maybe if you know where it's at, explain to us uh, how dire of a situation it is? <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it at a pretty high level because I looked at the title of the bill. I read just a couple of sentences in it to realize uh, this, this, this probably isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but the, the basic idea, and it would be uh, Pippen-Robertson covers ammo and bows and arrows, but uh, archery equipment as well, but, um, and then Dingle Johnson fishing gear. But, you know, that's, a, that's an earmarked 11% sales tax that uh, was developed uh, decades ago and has paid out billion, billions, as we know, and is the foundational funding source for state wildlife agencies to maintain these populations and habitats that we all love to enjoy. Um, it's a, it's a, an excise tax, on, tax that, um, as far as I know, the firearms industry is, is supportive of. The NRA is supportive of this. They're opposed to this bill uh, and all the conservation groups, to my knowledge. But basically, it would shift that those revenues away from the the tax on guns and ammo in particular was i believe the original intent here um you know uh, centering that on second amendment right you know centering that around yeah. the whole second amendment uh which really kind of di diverts away from the archery side of it but the bottom line they wanted to move that funding source into revenues from oil and gas offshore Everybody's tapping oil and gas offshore. You know, that originally was the plan for Rawa, um, was yeah. to utilize one, was to take, uh, to receive one point, uh, guarantee $1.4 billion uh, annually, 1.3 billion, whatever the number was, um, for, for the Recovering America's Wildlife Act off of, um, of offshore oil receipts. Uh, the Democrats didn't like that, uh, making, the connection to increased and expanded uh, offshore drilling. So they're still, uh, to, my not, to my knowledge, they're still looking for a pay for, you know, for the Rawa bill. But yeah. um, now this bill wants to go back and tap more of the oil and gas offshore receipts, which is what funds the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So um, having one source of funding, this is like retirement planning 101. If you've got all company stock and that's all you got in your entire portfolio, that's probably pretty risky. Well, um, and it's it's a non-renewable resource too, so it's you know it's obviously not a not a long-term plan. Right. Um, I, so I do want to kind of play the devil's advocate here. I'm totally against this bill, and I think most sportsmen are. But I was looking at it, and I saw that it it was 
essentially going to earmark, like, I think it was capping at like 850 million a year, um, like would be designated from that. I think it was the land shelf, uh, oil and gas act or whatever they call it. Um, and I was just curious what your thoughts would be like if I, I just wonder if guaranteeing 850 million um, dollars a year and plus it, it wouldn't what I saw would this bill would not take like, you know, selling elk calls. Right. There's an 11 percent tax on and selling anything that's like specifically hunting related. You'd still be getting those revenue dollars is that correct well you don't get it you don't get it on elk calls um oh really no that would fall into the category or deer pee or or any of the think of anything hunting related that's not you know archery uh, direct archery equipment and or uh guns and ammo it's not taxed right now really all the deer all the feeders all the and and that gets into what was used to be called the backpack tax or the you know the non uh, the recreational user tax um, that was what we called uh, CARA, and I can't remember what I can never remember what that acronym was, but it was it was uh, introduced back uh, I think in the 80s 90s. But the idea there it was the Rawa it was kind of a Rawa equivalent back in the early days where they mm-hmm. would tax tents, backpacks, binoculars, all those kinds of things. The outdoor recreation industry did not like that. Um, and it never made it, but it did spawn the state wildlife, uh, grant program. Um, we called it Kara light. Um, but that, that, that guaranteed money, uh, for state wildlife action plans and that's in play today. Um, but yeah, no, elk calls are not taxed at all. Wow. That that begs the question, should they be? (laughs) mountain bikes be taxed so there's lots of ways to pay for conservation and i think we've got a lot of room to have conversations about how are we in fact going to pay for conservation into the future and not everybody pays equally and and quite frankly the sportsmen love having that uh sound bite to play uh all the time that we fund conservation um but they also complain often that others don't pay, but if they, what if they wanted to? Would they be willing to share the space? Because with that funding comes a seat at the table. And that's, oh, a, for sure. that's some difficult conversations that I think have to be had. They've already started. We're already, and people do pay through their taxes. The Forest Service is funded congressionally, and they manage wildlife too. So does the BLM. So it's not like the sportsman's dollar and the PR funds pay everything. They yeah. don't. But they pay a significant chunk of it, and if PR went away, it would be dramatic. And, and to cap it at eight fifty would be far less. I mean, you know how PR goes in uh, in times like that. I think just oh. last year was the biggest distribution ever. Yeah, of PR funds because people have been buying lots of of uh, ammo and such. Yeah, well, and uh, I mean. Yeah, obviously, guns and ammo are are the biggest seller, um, just because sheer numbers. Um, but uh, I, that's so funny because I I always thought it was like there was like categories of like you know things that were labeled just for hunting got that tax on them. So I was I was gonna say like hey you know maybe eight hundred and fifty million guaranteed every year plus x amount from all these other things but if you're not getting those those other dollars it i mean that that seems like a like a pretty bad deal um but i want an opportunity to (laughs) yeah yeah that way exactly um speaking of ammunition 
Uh, we, we were kind of talking in the email about uh, kind of a hot topic right now, which is copper versus lead ammunition. And it seems like you got a, you have a pretty, um, you have a statement on it. Uh, would you like to go into your perspective on the whole thing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it is a hot topic. We've had a position statement um, for, oh, I want to say several years now, and we just revised it. Um, we worked with a, a committee of wildlife biologists that um, that helped us put this together. We, you know, went and looked at the old one and revised it. Um, and, you know, largely it supports getting lead out of the environment, but through voluntary measures and, and such. Uh, there's no, there's not, uh, you know, regulation necessarily embedded in this. Um, and, you know, it's a, a, a bit of a review of the science and kind of what the, what the science is telling us, which, you know, is, is uh, variable in some, some cases and, and not variable, uh, not so variable in others. I mean, it's pretty clear to me lead's a, a toxic, um, a toxic, uh, uh, a very toxic uh, mineral and and um, or element. What is lead? An element or mineral? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know. Right. Yeah, I feel like it's an element. Well, I feel like I've seen it a... here, but uh, yeah, metal, uh, it's not good for the environment. And um, you know, I think where it gets dicey is population level effects um versus individual effects i mean we know uh, animals that eat lead uh waterfowl this was uh established quite a while ago when we went to non-toxic shot for waterfowl uh we haven't done that with upland birds uh we're starting to go there with big game and the big driver there is when eagles and and such uh, eat on uh, dead carcasses there's fragments of the lead um but uh so that position statement um, from the Wildlife Society, it's it was just revised uh, a few weeks ago, actually, um, in June. It's available on our website. If you go to uh, wildlife.org, uh, you can type in, you can look under policy or type in just in the search engine position statements, um, or you could even just type in lead uh, in hunting ammunition and fishing tackle. It'll come up um, and you can download that position statement. But basically, um, you know, we acknowledge that the ingestion of lead from spent ammunition and lost fishing tackle can sicken wildlife. I don't think that's uh, that's debatable. I think I think it's pretty well established. Uh, but then we recognize that, um, you know, well established lethal and sub lethal effects of of lead um, that the conclusive population impacts uh, need not necessarily be the threshold required to implement a policy. So uh, what that's really saying is that um, you don't need to wait for the science to, to demonstrate that you wipe out an entire eagle population uh, to think, to, yeah. to basically says this is, if this is a good thing, you don't need to wait on the science for that. And yeah. that, was, that was one that was a little dicey with some of our members. Um, they yeah. like to be pure to the science, and uh, and the science is lagging behind always on management and day to day decision making. It's it's pretty interesting. Uh, like, what is the what is the main backlash? Like, is there an argument aside from you know, this is what I've always done. I've always shot lead. I mean, what what's the argument? Because it's just like if if I 
went to the to you know Cabela's or whatever, um, you know, and they had copper lead, and then all of a sudden they they took the copper or took the lead all those out. I would not care at all. I would I would not care. I, I mean, especially now with uh, some of the new rounds, you know, for big game, which are are clearly showing that they they can really pack a punch and and in some cases yeah. be more lethal. The ballistics data uh, take that argument away. I I, I shoot um, I shoot non toxic and and um, it's it's just as effective in my opinion. Now that was a question mark when you went when we went from lead to steel, uh, but they've gotten very very sophisticated on some of the non toxic uh, shot, and I would argue that that most of the non toxic shot, uh, at least in some of it, some of the bismuth rounds and others are just as effective if not more mm-hmm. uh, but uh there's that argument but i don't think that's that holds true for 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 uh rife for center fire um there's an economic argument and an availability argument for sure um you know it's expensive yeah. but if a law went into place tomorrow that said and, you know you don't want to you don't want to deregulate or regulate lead out of all situations controlled shooting range sport skeet ranges those kinds of things um for sure but um you, you know i uh we support the wildlife society sports advancing voluntary replacement of of you know hunting ammunition and fishing tackle uh, and we encourage the industry to develop an additional capacity to provide more non-lead products which will then drive the cost down which affects mm-hmm. that argument. But, you know, the shooting sports industry has other arguments, and I'm sure they'd be willing to express those to you. But I think, you know, we, we also, um, in our statement, we advocate for policies that promote the, 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 the long-term phase-out of, of the uh, lead-based hunting ammunition. And I think that's in tackle. And, you know, the, the fishing groups are, are opposed to that. And uh, we, But we heard that back when uh, non-toxic uh, came about for waterfowl. My, my issue with waterfowl um, is I shoot doves a lot and I use lead and I shoot a lot of doves over water. Most people do, mm. or a lot of people do. And so, you know, now I'm required to shoot non-toxic at, at waterfowl over water, uh, but I can shoot pheasants and quail and and doves and anything else with lead over water are you really getting the lead out of the system is is the regulation for waterfowl meeting its objectives and to some extent it may be that we just need to uh, to cut bait and go forward with non-toxic uh that's not the position of the wildlife society today but i'm just questioning this as a scientist and a and a hunter what sense does it make to allow hunters to shoot doves over water and then go back to the same pond and for and make them use steel to shoot waterfowl are you achieving the objective for waterfowl populations and non-toxic shots so it begs the question and there's not a lot of science on that not not a lot of science yet um yeah so not on, not on that cumulative impact of multiple seasons and different loads that kind of, that's where i was going okay uh, this is a big debate now on, on yeah expansion and whether you know uh, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service should mandate uh, non-toxic and such—that's that's a big debate ongoing too. So, so, so if so, there's basically two kinds of hunting that you can still hunt with lead: big game and and upland, right? Okay. Um, and and small I game, think, yeah. small game, yeah, small game rabbits and and stuff like that. Um, if you had to choose one, uh, just in terms of of 
environmental uh, efficacy um, and I guess ethics to where one you only could choose one and that would be the bigger impact switching and banning lead would it be big game or would it be like small game we'll lump small game and upland um, yeah upland upland without a doubt yeah is that just because there's more animals that are end up eating the you know expelled carcasses of well it's just the sheer volume of lead that's flung into the air at doves in particular i mean i don't even remember what the average is my average is pretty good because i shoot pretty well um but i think it's like a uh, 10 or 12 shells per dove killed on it. <laughs> I can't remember what it probably, is. But yeah, probably. Yeah, and so and I think if you think about all the pheasant hunters, all the all the upland game hunters, or uh, um, uh, small upland uh, bird hunters and small game hunters for rabbits and such, the amount of, just the sheer volume in the, in the environment, uh, that's where I would go. Yeah. Uh, with big game, I mean, I shoot two or three rounds at most a year. Um, if I only have one tag, usually it's one round. So it's, it's concentrated in that one animal, obviously mm-hmm. multiplied by multiple hunters, but yeah, yeah I, 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 would go with the, the upland. So why haven't they just straight up banned? Cause I mean, bismuth and, and copper is, I feel like for upland, it's becoming a lot more popular. Why haven't they just straight up banned lead? Well, there's opposition to it, uh, obviously, again, largely from shooting sports, but also, you know, others too. Um, and there's arguments there, I suppose, but certainly, a, um, certainly a, uh, an economic factor. I went to okay. look, I looked at some non-toxic the other day and some of the bismuth rounds for a 20 gauge were pushing 50 bucks a box. Yeah. And I mean, that's, it, out, it's, of, that's out of most people's league. Yeah. And Plus, especially now with. <laughs> ammo shortages yeah it's right. it's it's a little yeah. a little rough right now a little rough uh, so. yeah. but you know again i i think you know from our perspective on on this position statement it doesn't change very much from our old position statement we worked with the association of fish and wildlife agencies uh they reviewed this and and some state biologists and many others were on our committee um and i think we can't land it in a in a good place with the idea that eventually we need to phase out lead. Yeah. It's not that different than phasing out oil and gas. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, and that, a little different in that it's a whole economic engine and obviously an energy source of um, that, that has yet to be replaced in many cases. But uh, conceptually, it's kind of the same. It's a long-term phase out. Yeah. Uh, carbon-free. But, um, yeah, we uh, we were careful in... in uh, you know, getting into the, the policy space of uh, requiring, man, uh, you know, outright uh, banning and those kinds of things. So, yeah, we also encourage education, too. I think there's a human dimensions element of this. Um, you know, uh, we, uh, we we think there's probably a need for better monitoring uh, over a broad range of wildlife species. Um, again, we talked about shooting doves with lead or, you know, with lead and and you know they eat a lot of uh, small seeds so and but there's not uh, a ton of information on a lot of other game birds and yeah. how they they pick up though that spent that spent lead so it's another thing that we we support is better monitoring and research but um well yeah a little bit um kind of after you implement something you got to follow through with it um right. 
So when, uh, I'm not sure if you can answer this, but after they banned lead for waterfowl, um, I'm sure there was a ton of guys that still had lead lead uh, shot for their shotguns, you know, stocked up on well, cases. Well, today had <laughs> waterfowl. Uh, well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, what? how long did it take for, obviously now you can't buy like, I mean, at least that I've seen, you can't buy like twos or threes, typical duck shells in lead at Cabela's or, or Sportsman's. Obviously, you can probably reload them. But like, how long did it take for that to shift um, to where people just accepted it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I don't. I still to this day don't think some people have accepted it. I think generally the vast majority of the population realized, yeah, uh, it's a law, and I don't want to break the law because I'll lose my hunting license and my my privileges for X amount of time. Um, but it took some time, and it took time for the price to come down. Yeah. Uh, you know, before the COVID uh, pandemic and the what led to shortages of ammunition and then uh you know uh i guess i'll just call it a political influence on ammo shortages uh when certain individuals were elected into office uh all of a sudden uh ammo went off the shelf it's great for pr but hard if you're a hunter to find a box of shells sometimes yeah. um, but i think you know after the ban it just the price just kept coming down and down and down which is why we have a statement in there about encouraging the industry to really up their capacity and getting more product of non-lead on the market, develop new ones and meet consumer demand, but also bring that price down where people can afford it. I mean, look, I shot Remington core locks forever. Those old slow 150 grains, 270 rounds, they killed just fine. Oh, yeah. um, but they were 12 bucks a box. Maybe I think I even bought them, for just, you know, nine, 10 bucks a box sometimes at Walmart. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, right. even now they're like 20, even, right. even with the crazy price, but they're still half the price of what the others are. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. But well, it took um, a little while. It took a little while back to the question. It, it, it just uh, takes a little yeah. while for things to sink in. There's always still going to be some culprits out there that are going to use lead. And by the way, you don't have to have twos. To kill geese with with lead, you can kill them with fours at, at pretty good distances. So it's just, must be a better shot than I. <laughs> well, it's just the ballistic difference of lead. And, yeah. But the point is, is that is that it it took some time, but I think people are quite accustomed to it now. And a lot of friends, I I, I admittedly am in this conundrum where I've got uh, lots of lead, and I I almost feel guilty now shooting it. But I'm going to have to. I'll either sell it. Um, I really don't want to throw it in the dumpster, you know. Um, I've just accumulated uh, shotgun shells, and uh, I'm in this conundrum where I preach this, you know, we ought to be phasing it out, but I haven't switched 100% myself either on the upland. Largely, it's an economic thing. I've just got like two or three cases of pheasant loads that I've acquired over, you know, events we used to do at the TRCP and just buying it myself. And, um, what do I do with it? If I sell it, somebody else is going to shoot it in the environment. So it's a weird conundrum. Uh, but slowly I'm myself phasing into uh, non-toxic when I can find it these days for Upland. But but uh, the big game stuff, I, we made the switch, my wife and I both. So nice. My friends, yeah. they just they just cut bait. They shot they shot up their lead, and they they've stopped and they shoot everything's non-toxic right now. So. Well, and it's for big game, it's a lot easier to, you know, stomach the 75 bucks once a year rather than, you know, 50 bucks, 
you know, three times a year for non-toxic, uh, upland rounds if you're, if you're hunting a lot. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that makes, that makes sense. Um, so you are obviously in contact. You probably know more wildlife biologists than anybody on this planet. You probably, but I know a lot. (laughs) You you probably know a lot more. I certainly have access to them because I have the member database. We have about 12,000 members. (laughs) Well, exactly. Um, so, so you're entrenched in the wildlife biologist world. Um, what do you think if you had to pick one thing, like what, what do you think, um, specifically and you know, I'm not talking about just like habitat loss because that's a, that's a, a big deal, but, uh, maybe you could go into the specifics of what the biggest threat to wildlife is nowadays. I might throw you off guard on this off, off base on this one a little bit or catch you off guard with my answer. Um, I think public indifference, quite frankly, mm. and public attitudes are a huge threat to wildlife. And the reason I say that is people are just becoming more and more disconnected. I mean, there's a core of us out there that are connected, but um, if the public doesn't support our programs, money to pay for habitat uh, management, enhancement, support PR, uh, all, all of these kinds of things, um, we're going to struggle under the way we have the North American model set up, but I, I think it's a huge threat. I think there's a sector of the population that view wildlife more as their as their kindred spirits and in, in their social group. Uh, there's a term for that called mutualism. I think that that detracts from the need uh, that 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 converts the perception of wildlife more to individuals than it does populations and populations have to be managed. We know that, but, you know, so that can create some of that indifference. So I think just shifting public values and attitudes about wildlife represent a threat that we're not paying as close attention to as I think we need to. Um, Oh, that's, yeah, that's an interesting answer, but I'm, I'm bought into it. Um, You can, it would have been easy to say climate change. It would have been obviously easy to say habitat loss, but I think an, an existential threat that we're, we're paying attention to it, make no mistake. I mean, there are many professionals that are very cognizant of this and thinking about it, but we're not addressing it necessarily uh, as well as it could be. And a lot of that's just public education. And some people are just never going to change their, their minds and their thoughts and feelings about things, but it can create a problem because these people vote. Yeah. And politics and policy are two very different things, but they interplay and the policy affects funding. It affects um, all kinds of aspects of wildlife management and science that a lot of people don't even think about. So what do you think can be done differently to to um, create more passion around wildlife because I mean we're in an age I mean yeah you can say like people are more disconnected from from nature than ever but uh, I also feel like it's so much easier to create awareness about these these things nowadays you know of, like climate change right yeah so much awareness around that and we but, have messengers too I mean look at you guys yeah. you're, you're doing your podcast now there's a lot more venues for this exchange, which is why I love getting on here with you and others and talking about this stuff, because this is exactly what we need to do. 
We yeah. need to be training our own ranks on how to talk to the public and encouraging them to do so and not getting in arguments and fistfights and all that stuff, but having good conversations about why wildlife are important. Things don't just manifest out on the landscape. You know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> they, 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 they are, you know, they're a reason we have elk and they're a reason we have you know, strong populations of, of trout and because of water quality and those kind of, there's a reason for all this stuff. People just don't understand it. Uh, and we just need to increase the, that educational component. Um, you brought up something very interesting earlier about, you know, certain segment sectors of the recreational community that don't fully appreciate biologists. Uh, there's a good place to start. I mean, we've got 80% common ground right there. We all love the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think a lot of recreationists don't understand is that we have wildlife in principle and in found foundationally because we have wildlife biologists and professionals that manage them and an entire system of, you know, under the public trust doctrine of stewards of public wildlife. You know, the wildlife are everyone's. They're, they're, they're for the public. It's not for hunters and anglers. It's for the public. And that requires a steward, and steward, you know, to be a good steward, you have to have resources to, to manage. It comes with great responsibility, and a lot of people just don't understand that. They don't have any clue about the funding sources. They don't have much of a clue about the policies and, and what it takes for an elk population, or, or even if let's go down another road of uh, introducing wolves uh, into uh, an environment for an ego. They just don't have the full... Uh, and I'm not talking down to people. I'm not trying to talk down on people, but it's just uh, people don't fully appreciate the complexity and and everything that goes into managing wildlife and having what we have in this country and North America in particular, as you know, as opposed to other countries. Yeah, well, and it, it's kind of shocking to like I feel like uh, you know there there's kind of like this false. Um, sense of natural appreciation that has been created with like social media and stuff like that. Right. You see all these, all these people that are posting a video of, you know, hanging Lake here in Colorado would, you know, one of the most more beautiful places that you could go or, you know, these, these typical tourist traps, but then you talk to some of these people and they can't tell you what a Robin is, which, you know, that's one of the, one of the more common birds you probably hear it every single morning and you just think of it as a bird. Right. But, but I think, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's like this whole false sense of natural appreciation where people appreciate this land, but they don't appreciate the things that really make the land what, what you and I love. Right. You know, and they, they, some think that, okay, um, we don't need to hunt. We don't need to manage, uh, those, you know, uh, everything will just take care of itself. Hmm. And it will, but is it the outcome that society wants? And, you know, a good example is um, urbanization and deer populations. No, we don't have to hunt. And mountain lions, for that matter. I mean, you can, you know, mountain lions um, in hunted populations behave very differently than those that are unhunted. Um, and and it's just what what outcome do you want? Uh, yeah. Things will take. Uh, the, things will um, try to move toward equilibrium, and and um, deer populations. I mean, populations are like the stock market; they go up, down, and sideways. That's the only direction they can go. <laughs> they can't mm-hmm. go any other direction. Yeah. And 
something will drive them up and something will drive them down. And, you know, urban people love to have deer in their or uh, suburban people live in suburbs and in the wildland urban uh, interface um, love to have deer. But until they start, you know, eating their bushes and stuff, well, then if you want to manage those populations, are they willing to accept that? Uh, so, and some people never will accept, you know, active wildlife management where you have to kill certain animals. They just never accept it. But the other outcome, you know, disease, um, there's other, there's just, you know, vehicle accidents on, on highways. There's all kinds of ways that animals are going to die and they're going to die. Yeah. Oh, so we're all going to die. All organic organisms are going to die of yeah. some. So. Oh, for sure. Social. There's that human dimension and social tolerance and acceptance part of it that people don't really think about that much. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, for things to go back to normal, first off, it would take thousands of years because there would be all these population rises and then crashes, right, with with populations hitting a threshold that they, you know, maybe they could have when there was an unspoiled land, but nowadays it's just impossible due to habitat. Um, it would take that, but then it would also take you know, literally every single cornfield to be dissolved, to go back to what it used to be, you know, see, you know, uh, tall grass prairie or, or whatever, every single skyscraper would have to crash. All these things would have to, if you want it to really go back to normal to where, you know, humans don't manage it, there's just, it's impossible at this point. We've accepted the, the burden of being the stewards for this land. And I think, you know, people just really don't understand that. I mean, what, what, what would be a good way? What in your experience being a wildlife biologist, what's the best way to, to kind of get somebody to fully grasp what we have in, especially our North American wildlife conservation system? I, I think some of that starts, Ryan, with just, you know, just the very basics of, you know, our policies, where we came from. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people want want the world to go back to uh, the, the early 1800s or before, and that's not going to happen. Um, we've got nine plus billion people and, and on the rise. I mean, a, a person's born... In the U.S., I think every 37 seconds or something like that. So, you know, we've got an increasing population and a demand on resources. And I I think, you know, one of Leopold's, I'm, I'm not diverting the question here, but I'm philosophizing here ever so much with Leopold. One of his biggest fears was that people would think that breakfast comes from the grocer and heat comes from the furnace. They mm. don't understand the, the basic underpinnings. And I think that's where you have to start is, you know, with basic biology biological principles and concepts of populations and and then you know it's that interface with humans we are part of this planet we are part of the system we are animals ourselves we've just had you know developed the capability of manipulating it in ways that other animals can't and but we also have means to fix that too but there are the management, but, and in some place, some cases, just letting systems go and do their thing, Yellowstone being a good example, or, and it's not 100% pure because of the tourism uh, mm-hmm. impacts and such, but, but uh, sometimes that okay, but just understanding the uh, kind of if-then scenarios is the way I kind of like to talk to people. I try to gauge an understanding of what they know, 
uh, not get argumentative, but just say, well, what about, you know, a situation like this? Um, would you support wolves if they were, um, you know, stalking your dogs in your backyard every night? Yeah. What would happen if a mountain lion jumped the fence and killed your cats? Uh, you know, it's just little things like, well, you know, then the, you change the conversation and start talking about managing populations as opposed to individuals. Yeah. Um, and get, I, I think the the idea, and then a basic understanding of just our policies. I, I don't think people have a good understanding. They know uh, there used to be, you know, an estimated million, tens of millions of buffalo, and we wiped them all out for any number of reasons, um, some political and and uh, some some uh, uh, for for you know uh, war sake and those kinds of things, others for just a, a mass uh, meat market and hide market, but um, but they don't know uh, necessarily some of the success stories of other critters. Bison have come back, but they're a little different than like elk and white-tailed deer. I mean, all of those animals could have been listed under the Endangered Species Act at the turn of the century. So we have a ton of success stories, but I just think people need to understand why that happened. And it yeah. wasn't just because of sportsmen and women. I mean, it, it, they no. were a major player there, but you had preservationists like John Muir and others that were working that angle too. So uh, just getting them to understand what we have in this country and why we have it. And, you know, I've got some issues with the North American model, but, but by and large, it's unique. It's, it's certainly a piece of, a, of American genius, uh, mm -hmm. North American genius, at least U.S. and Canada, that just the way we've set this up on how it's a user-pay type system under the guise of the public trust doctrine. We have this whole system in place on how to pay for conservation, not that everybody pays. Everybody should benefit, but um, I think just getting them that kind of understanding, that's a lot in the answer here, but I, I think just some of the basics uh, folks don't fully appreciate. They get their information largely from, you know, Animal Planet and and um, yep. the Irwins and the, those kinds of shows. And they do, a, a lot of them do a really good job, but a lot of times they individualize animals, you know, by mm -hmm. naming them and those kinds of things. And it, sometimes that detracts from, you know, population management and things that people may struggle with if they don't appreciate the killing of an individual or individuals to achieve a population goal. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think what you were saying, like it, I really do think that what we got with, um, you know, hunting and fishing and just our, our conservation ethic that we have in America is probably, I mean, if you think about it, it's probably one of our best systems that we've come up with just in terms of like, if you, if you could apply like the Pittman's, the, the PR or Dingle Johnson to anything else, people sure. would be stoked to pay higher taxes, right? right? Because you see what what is coming back to you. It's it's a perfect. You can see that that it's tangential. Yeah, it, ex you can yeah. see it and almost feel it. Yeah, uh, as it manifests out on the ground. Exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like if you were to you know go out on a toll road and but then you know, a month later, you see them fixing that toll road and making it better, right? Or or if you were to pay for, for high school, but you had this awesome high school, you know, I feel like people would be so much more willing to pay for it. That being said, I didn't learn about any of that stuff in school. 
No. Was that something that you learned about in early oh, yeah. education? It I was a lot of that in my education, but I've seen it. I've seen it decline. Uh, and this is no dig at the universities or the professors that are teaching. Uh, but I, I, I have to wonder. Um, I haven't gone through and looked at all curricula, but it makes me wonder. Um, you know, if some of those basics of policy and wildlife management are being taught, I. I teach a policy class at Colorado State, a couple of them, but my, mm. my, my more general policy course, we start back to almost square one back in the uh, or, you know, pre-settlement days. We go back and do a historical time track of how, how things happened over the first couple of, uh, uh, of, our, of my modules in my course. And you know, then, of course, we go back into um, uh, the basics of each law, like the Lacey Act, which ended market hunting. Um, you know, we talk about the Duck Stamp Act. We talk about PR. All these things that happened to kind of develop into what we know now as modern wildlife management. But that's for wildlife students and ecology and conservation type students. You know, not everybody's getting that. So we need more education courses out there and more voices out there talking to more people about how you know what we have and how we got how we got here and, yeah. and then we can start talking about where to go in the future did they did they teach any of that stuff in like elementary school or middle school or high school back in your yeah, i'm glad you brought that up because i meant to say that it's like that's where we really need to start too is some of this yeah. basic education and it's probably happening in some places but it's clearly not happening enough and it needs to happen yeah. in urban areas um you know, and, and just some of the shows that, um, that, you know, like Nat Geo, I'd love to, I'd love to work with some of these and maybe it's, maybe they, you know, they teach it, they, they bring things up at certain times, but we could do better, I guess. Yeah. Get big yeah. audiences. So we, we just need to, and one of my goals coming into the wildlife society was, because I learned a good bit while I was at the TRCP, not just about policy, but about the interface of communications uh, with policy and with the public. And we focused a lot there, of course, on the hunting and fishing community and merged into the outdoor community as well. But um, the public, who's, yeah. teaching, who's, who's working the public? And we all, we all need to have a vested interest in working toward a more literate society on conservation and, and um, you know, basic principles of fish and wildlife management. Yeah. Well, I think it's more important now than ever. And I always say this on this podcast, anytime I'm talking with somebody in the conservation world, but I, I really believe that we're at a threshold for multiple reasons. A, just because population, right? That's, that's number one. But also, I mean, what you were saying earlier with uh, just indifference, right? I mean, like, maybe I don't have the correct perspective, right? Because my generation, I'm, I'm in it. And, you know, there's the whole revisionist history thing going on for, for older generations. But the way I see it, I mean, we, there's like, and maybe our, my generation is just too young to have really made an impact on it yet. But <laughs> I don't see any of the, any of the folks that are really, uh, you know, like almost crazy for it right to where you know you're really gonna make some changes um and and i get concerned for that and i think i'm gonna give it some more time right because and i really do i want to give my life to conservation right that's i think it's just so important to me and 
Seek Outside obviously feels the same way. A lot of the people I know, my parents, my family, they're all super conservation minded. But, um, you know, I, I, I get worried that and it starts with education of the public. And, and you know, if if somebody doesn't know what we have, they can't protect it. But I, I get worried for for my generation. I don't I don't know if maybe you felt the same back in your day or, or what? You know, it was probably a little different when I was a lot younger. I was so I was so immersed in this profession and into wildlife. And I've always been hunting, you know, deeply immersed. This is my 50th year hunting in a row. I've I've hunted my whole life. Uh, my grandpa started taking me when I was, you know, five years old. I, I couldn't hunt legally then. I was 10 years old in the state of Illinois. But I was always outside. I was, And that's the difference between rural America and, and you know, and urban America sometimes. And I think what's also is different, just, just you know, uh, just the exposure of, of, um, uh, of people to wildlife. They see it on TV, but they don't necessarily go out and seek it. And you have to have mentors to do that. I've always had mentors. I've always had the desire to go outside and and an opportunity to go outside. I I, I was blissfully ignorant probably in my youth uh, because there was still a good bit of abundance. I'd get frustrated, you know, I guess with um, certain things, but it didn't feel dire like it feels today. Yeah, um, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I I, I think we are. You called it a threshold. I, I, I like to use a, a an album uh, or a picture of Robert Johnson at the crossroads. I feel like we're at the crossroads yet again. Yeah. Are we going to move forward and go down the or whatever, go backwards? What, what path are we going to take here? But we are at a crossroads, but we always seem to be at one on every issue these days. So it does feel a little more dire to me now. And a little yeah. bit of that comes with age and wisdom and and a full appreciation and a holistic view of the world that, you know, when you really start throwing in the population, the human population in, and all you have to do is type in world population or U.S. population, and what will pop up in Google is a counter, either a link to it or it'll yeah. be right there in front of you. And it's automatically calculating deaths and births and growth right before your very eyes and that's where that average of one person every 37 seconds added to the u.s population or every minute whatever it is um you look at that for a couple of minutes and it's strike it just has an effect on you and then you start yeah. thinking wow we need resources for all of these people yeah i just uh, it all comes together holistically and it, it's it's not an easy situation then when you throw climate change on top of it um, you know, and big picture issues like that and disease pandemics and all those things, then it, then it makes you think uh, a little more urgently sometimes about yeah. we need to take oh. action. Well, let's hope, uh, go, going back to your Robert Johnson uh, analogy, let's hope that we make a deal with the devil and make songs that turn into <laughs> awesome Led Zeppelin songs and are played all across the world. <laughs> That's right. that's what I'm hoping for. So I'm hey, I'm hopefully yeah. optimistic. I always I'm, yeah. I'm always you know it's it's easy to point out the gloom and doom. It's easier today than ever before, but I'm I'm hopeful. Your generation, the next generation, it, it, we just got to get them excited about this and understanding that it can go away just like that, and yeah. and we shouldn't take it for granted. And we have to work a little bit to have what we have in this country for conservation and the world. Yeah. For conservation and for wildlife and fish populations that everybody can enjoy, whether they hunt or fish or not. So, yeah.
Well, and that's why we're uh, we're also thankful for for groups like the Wildlife Society, TRCP. I mean, I was just had a great conversation with Joel over there. So, um, yeah, I I really I don't want to take too much more of your time out out of the evening here, but uh, I really do appreciate you you jumping on. Um, that's a great and, conversation. Uh, really appreciate it, Ryan. Yep, yep, for sure. And um, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to link up. Uh, I, if Rawa ends, and the only reason we didn't get into it here was because I just kind of covered a lot of it with uh, with Joel. Um, so that podcast is out. Um, and um, but hopefully, I would like to. If Rawa does end up getting passed here, I'd like to to kind of get everybody's um, perspectives on it, and uh, you know, and kind of do a yep. little victory lap or whatever. But um, it'll be huge. It, it'll be a generational yeah. changing kind of funding source that we haven't seen in a long time. And and it'll be focused more specifically at, at habitat, non-game. It's not, um, but it's going to benefit all wildlife. And it's just yeah. another piece of funding that we really need to keep what we have and, and to expand what we have. Yeah. So well, and, yeah, I mean, what uh, what benefits the uh, the the thirteen striped ground squirrel or the the you know Colorado humpback chub or something? It's going to affect everything else. So, um, in some way, shape, or form. Well, yeah, I think yeah. back to this educational piece too. I just one last thing I'll say. I've had a mantra for a number of years that I, I'll share with you. I I I think people don't view it's too business like for some people, but. To me, it's fundamental and, and foundational for conservation. It has to be an investment and not an impediment. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly targeted that's industry because when I was working in the timber industry, I've, we, we kind of coined this idea that this is, the, this is the mind shift that conservation has always been an impediment to industries, some extractive industries and others, but why not make it an investment? And I think the whole, our whole society globally needs to think about it that way. And it's not just to make a buck, but it's to, it's for long-term sustainability. Mm -hmm. And and we can make conservation an investment for any number of reasons, an an active, thriving outdoor industry, um, you know, wildlife populations, clean water, clean air, who can't get behind that? You know, mm-hmm. so I think I think if we view it as an investment and in ourselves as part of that community, uh, I, I think we just take on a new attitude and that would spawn more more activism, more activity, more money, all the things that we need to keep keep uh, keep conservation thriving. Keep it thriving. I like that uh, investment, not impediment that that should be a, a slogan somewhere. For sure. I'm going to try to, that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do it. Hey, invest. That's an investment right there. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right on. Well, uh, thank you very much, Ed. Appreciate you. Um, and have a great rest of your night, man. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate what you guys do too. The outdoor industry is a key part on all this.